This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's talk about casinos in British Columbia. They've been shut down for six months during the COVID-19 pandemic. So many other businesses have reopened what about the casinos? Should they be allowed to reopen too? A lot of people there have been laid off from their jobs. A lot of municipalities missing out in crucial revenue that flow from casinos. Is it time to shuffle up and deal here, reopen the casinos again? Let's talk about that right now. My guest is Ken Christian. He's the mayor of Kamloops. Hi, Ken. Hi, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Appreciate it. No problem. Uh, let's talk about the casinos uh, being shut down. There's two of them in Kamloops, right? Yeah, we have the Chances Casino in Brocklehurst and the Cascades Casino in Aberdeen. Both of them have been closed for six months. Right. What kind of impact has that had on, uh, let's say, the city's finances, but I guess also, also the people who work there? Yeah, you know, first of all, for the people who work there, we have over 200 employees that are out of work and have been so, uh, you know, for that period of time. Uh, and from the perspective of the city, it really is uh, a couple of areas. One is the uh, uh, host local government uh, gaming grant that we get. It's about 10% of the take of those casinos. So it's between yeah. 2.5 uh, to $2.7 million per year that we're not receiving. Wow. Plus, there is those uh, gaming policy and enforcement branch gaming grants that community groups get. So everything from seniors to uh, Boys and Girls Club to uh, child care facilities, uh, that money is not available for them in our community either. So, you know, it's it's a hit. Uh, but I think what's important is that, uh, you know, they have a safe return to play plan. And from what I've heard from uh, Gateway Casino as well as from uh, BCLC is that uh, the plans that they put forward uh, are pretty rigorous. They have a, a good way of tracking all of their players uh, through their Encore program, and they have got procedures in place for disinfection and, and separation and those kinds of things that you would think in other industries have uh, allowed the provincial health officer to uh, find a, a clear path to opening them. So it just perplexes me that you've got uh, strip clubs open, but not our casinos. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Okay. Speaking of the provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, let me uh, play a clip here for you, Mayor Christian. This is uh, Bonnie Henry speaking about uh, shutting down the casinos. We know that large numbers of people in indoor uh, enclosed environments with poor ventilation, particularly people who are older or more at risk, and some uh, people who attend casinos on a regular basis fit into that. I know they have been working with WorkSafe BC to uh, determine if there's a way that they can open, um, taking those into account and they're developing uh, protocols. I have not yet seen them, but I know that uh, that is one of the areas that they're looking at um, with that meet the guidance that we have to ensure that they can operate safely. Okay, so you hear they're not ruling out the casinos reopening, but that clip is many weeks old. So what's the holdup? Do you know? 
Well, you know, I don't know. And, and when you look at the experience in Alberta where they have opened their casinos, uh, I have not heard of uh, casinos having to be closed because of outbreaks. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's the degree of vigilance that you have. And that is an industry where there is a great deal of vigilance. There's a lot of security uh, and there's a lot of technology, uh, both of which can be used to uh, fight COVID-19. And I think that, uh, you know, on balance, there there certainly is a uh, infectious disease risk, but there's also a, a risk to the community in terms of the social determinants of health and, and a lot of the unmet needs which are going by the buys because uh, of a lack of money to uh, support a lot of other causes in our communities. Okay, speaking to Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian about BC casinos, what about the points that she raised, though, that casinos often attract kind of an older clientele who could be more at risk from COVID-19, closed environment, poor air circulation, no windows. So she has obviously identified those as, as a risk. Your thoughts? Can that be mitigated? Uh, well, yeah, it certainly can. I, I think that, uh, you know, she's right in terms of the demographic of the players uh, in, yeah. in many cases, but these are not stuffy, closed environments anymore. Certainly the casinos in our community are uh, state-of-the-art. Uh, they have uh, uh, up-to-date uh, uh, air uh, circulation and air handling equipment, and, and so the difference between that and Costco, I have a hard time uh, determining. Okay, how would they keep players safe if they reopen the casino? I mean, what are they going to do? Wipe down the dice between every crapshoot or clean the cards between every hand of poker or blackjack? I mean, how would they do that? Yeah, and, and that would be up to the casino operators, and they have been working, uh, you know, with WorkSafe BC. I think they have, uh, you know, obviously the plexiglass uh, kinds of separations in place limit the number of players uh, with their Encore equipment. Uh, my understanding is that if you plugged your card into uh, one machine, the machines on either side would be disabled, and then when you moved your removed your card, that machine wouldn't be reset until it was disinfected. So, as I say, I mean, they have a lot lot of uh, uh, ways in which they monitor people's gaming habits, and those can yeah. be used for uh, infectious disease control purposes. Okay, you're not the only mayor who is speaking up on this. I've seen other mayors speaking up and saying, look, maybe six months, these casinos have been shut down, just about everything else is, is reopened. You know, let's let's get going here. Are, are you hearing from any other municipalities around British Columbia saying, man, we're losing out on a lot of revenue here, let's get going? Yeah, and, and as I said at the outset, it's not just the revenue. It, it's the yeah, employees right. and, and the members of our community that are out of work. But, you know, uh, myself, along with uh, mayors from the interior, uh, you know, mayor of Kelowna, the mayor of Williams Lake, uh, mayors from the north, uh, mayor of Terrace, mayor of uh, Fort St. John, lower mainland, the mayor of uh, Burnaby and, and New Westminster, and even on the island. So, you know, we've sent a, a letter to uh, the premier and to Carol James and, and to David Eby uh, asking for some some reconsideration of this. It, it just seems to us to be uh, somewhat inconsistent. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, hopefully, you know, we're not heading into a second wave of COVID-19. But, you know, we uh, think that uh, certainly when you compare casinos uh, to other industries that are open, uh, it's an inconsistent closure. Yeah. What about, um, I wonder about some regions of the province. You just mentioned a lot of different areas of BC and the COVID numbers are different, of course, from region to region. I mean, you might go to uh, northern BC or the interior where there's really not a whole lot of COVID. So would you say the risk is lessened as a result? 
Well, the risk is lessened, but uh, I, I think uh, the minister has been very clear that they're not going to have uh, rules for various parts of the province. It's hard enough to figure out the rules as they are province-wide. So I agree with him on that point. I, I think that, uh, you know, if you're going to open them, you're going to open them across the province. But, you know, what we have seen is that, uh, you know, some of the industries that uh, got open uh, and then had some missteps have been reclosed. And, and so... That is an option that they could certainly do, and and right. I think that that would hold the casino operators' uh, feet to the fire in terms of making sure that this is a safe environment. But uh, I think we should give them the opportunity to uh, show that or to prove that they have the mechanisms in place to keep uh, to keep uh, British Columbians safe. Mayor Christian, thank you for coming on the show today. Always a pleasure. Thank you very okay. much. Okay. All right, welcome back to the show. We just heard that breaking news there in our newscast there with the province's uh, top provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, has just issued a new public health order addressing the overdose uh, drug crisis in British Columbia. We've been tracking at well over 170 overdose deaths a month in British Columbia. And uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, just in the last few minutes, uh, bringing in some provincial health orders on that that would allow... Uh, physicians and nurses, registered nurses, nurse practitioners to prescribe pharmaceutical alternatives for drug users. So that is something that is a developing story right now, and we are working to cover that for you. We'll have more coverage on that coming up later today. But right now, let's talk about the sale of Mountain Equipment Co-op to an American investment fund. How did this happen to this crown jewel of cooperatives in Canada and a very proud company in Vancouver sold to the Americans of all people? My goodness, a lot of uh, members of the Mountain Equipment Co-op not happy with that. There's a couple of petition campaigns underway to try and stop this sale and reverse it. Have a listen to this. This is Michael Roy. He's one of the guys who started the petition to cancel this sale of MEC. Have a listen. I'm hearing from a lot of people. They're really angry that members weren't consulted, that members weren't brought in to help solve some of the financial problems. Uh, Crown Mountain Equipment is really a, a special Canadian institution that so many people, so many outdoors folks uh, rely on for uh, their equipment and for community. And we're really disappointed that the board made this decision behind closed doors. Yeah, it goes all the way back to the 1970s in Vancouver, sold to American interest. Mountain Equipment Co-op had been going through some tough times, though. Let's talk about that now with my guest, Catherine McIntyre. She's an award-winning reporter with The Logic, uh, Canadian Business Magazine. Uh, her stuff has been everywhere. McLean's Magazine. She's done some great work on this story. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. You've done some really good work on Mountain Equipment Co-ops. I'm interested in how uh, how did MEC get into this mess in the first place? I mean, was this kind of the the, the COVID-19 pandemic? That really hammered them, right? Well, I mean, the pandemic didn't help, but um, we're learning more and more about just how bad of a financial position that was in going into the pandemic. Mm. Um, so we knew last year they posted record losses. Um, and then um, through their creditor protection process, which they launched this week, um, we've learned that this year, or the last, their last fiscal year, which ended in February, so before the pandemic, um, their losses were much, much higher. So they reported $23 million in losses. Um, until there's disagreement over why they've been struggling so much financially, um, you know, part of 
um, the reason that the company had given last year when they posted their big loss was um, that sales were slower than they had expected, um, right. largely because you've got competitors like Amazon um, moving into a space that they occupy. Um, but sales had actually increased a little bit that year, and other people I spoke to, they pointed to um, next expansion um, right. starting in about 2015, so this push to really build out their physical footprint um, at a time when other retailers were focusing more on e-retail. Um, here you had Mac purchasing really expensive real estate or leasing really expensive real estate, so that yeah. didn't help. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of these sort of brick-and-mortar retail operations have, have been suffering for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned, especially the online competition from giants like like Amazon. But I often thought, like I shop at Mountain Equipment Co-op myself on occasion, that I often thought if there was any company that might be able to kind of weather that storm, maybe it would be Mountain Equipment Co-op because of customer loyalty and the pride that people have as, as a local com- a Canadian company. But um, yeah, it, it certainly has not worked out well, especially with those expansion plans, as you mentioned. How this new ownership model, this this announcement, has surprised a lot of people with this American firm stepping in to take over. Uh, have they said how that's going to work? Are they are they saying they're going to continue to operate all the Mountain Equipment Co-op stores the way they they've always operated, or what's their plan? Do we know? Well, we know a little bit about what they plan to do. So yeah. Kingswood uh, Capital Management, as you mentioned, this private equity firm. They're based in California, and they set up a Canadian affiliate um, to run MEC here in Canada. Um, so what MEC will look like under Kingswood is um, it will, it'll no longer be a co-op. It'll be a private company. Um, and so what that means in practice is members won't be able to vote for board members um, or for major changes at the organization. Um, they won't be eligible for something called patronage charges, which are like a co-op's version of uh, dividend payments. Um, wow. Members haven't really seen those in a few years anyway because the company uh, or the co-op hadn't been profitable. Um, but uh, aside from that, um, Kingswood is promising to keep open at least 17 stores or currently 22 um, and to retain at least 75% of MEC's um, workforce. And that's kind of just in the short term. I don't know what their plans look like, you know, beyond kind of the immediate future. Right. Speaking to Catherine McIntyre, she's an award-winning reporter, The Logic, This Magazine, done great work on Mountain Equipment Co-op. There's a lot of people, Catherine, as you know, who are angry and upset about this sale, longtime members of the cooperative. There's a couple of online petitions that have been started to try and somehow step in and reverse this sale. Is that possible at this point? Is it possible to stop this thing, or has the train kind of left the station here? Uh, I mean, so technically, this is not a done deal. Um, There is the possibility that... Um, the seller, so Mac or the buyer, Kingswood, would, could back out of the deal or that the judge reviewing the creditor protection process um, stops it from going forward. Um, that, I think, is unlikely. Um, and in terms of members' power here, yeah. I think, you know, beyond trying to convince the Mac board through things like petitions, um, that the sale shouldn't happen. There isn't 
a whole lot that they can do to stop it, um, legally speaking. Um, Now, there is some confusion around this whole process just because it's so unusual to see um, a co-op file for creditor protection and to be sold through a process like that. Um, So I spoke to um, the BC Co-op Association yesterday, and they're trying to find out if this does comply with the federal and provincial laws for a co-op, just because they've never seen it before. So, um, you know, those are questions that a lot of members have and that the the Co-op Association has and that they haven't been able to get yet. We're we're trying to find out the answers to those two. Very interesting. For for most people who who shop there, you know, if they go into a mountain equipment co-op store, maybe they plunk down their $5 to become a member and then probably don't think about it anymore. I mean, all they want to do is, you know, buy their fleece jacket or their Gore-Tex pants or whatever and then go. But there are people who are who love this company and and don't want it the sale to go through uh and they're longtime members of this cooperative and they've tried in in some cases unsuccessfully to change the direction of the, of the company in this particular case do you know if if the co-op members were was anyone consulted about this i mean if you're a member of a co-op you'd think that you'd be told if the co-op is going to be sold or was, is there any legal obligation to tell the members that? Yeah. So I spoke to the board chair, um, Judy Richardson yesterday, and she assured me that they had no obligation to tell um, their members. And um, they in fact did not consult uh, members right. at all. Yeah. Um, you know, they didn't, not only did they not consult them, they didn't, disclose that this was something that they were considering. Um, So certainly like with a regular creditor protection process, the shareholders would not have to be consulted. We know that, but um, because like I said, this involves a co-op and it's unusual to see this with a co-op. There's still, I think a lot of, there's a lot of confusion uh, around whether you know, a, an organization that espouses the values of democracy and openness as part of its mandate, um, whether they had um, the duty to consult their members for this. Okay. All right. Welcome back. We're continuing to talk about Mountain Equipment Co-op with my guest, investigative reporter Catherine McIntyre. Yesterday, Premier John Horgan made a statement on this. He took to Twitter and he wrote that Mountain Equipment Co-op was founded here in BC. It's been a big part of the lives of British Columbians who love the outdoors. It's sad to see Canada's largest co-op being sold off to a U.S. firm without consulting the millions of members. That's John Horgan yesterday online. No indication he's going to do anything about it, though. Uh, two dueling petitions now, just over 31,000 signatures to try and stop the sale. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Laura in Vancouver. Hi, Laura. Hi, thank you. Hi uh, uh, I think we should stop selling Canadian companies outside of Canada. And can we ask the judge to direct the MEC board to allow members to put forth proposals, like with the Rio Theatre, where it became a community purchase? And lastly, the members, if they would all write to the purchasing company, saying we won't support them if they do their purchase. There's 5 million members, even if 20% or a million people wrote to them, they'd back off. 
Okay, th- thank you for the call. Well, I'm, I'm not sure they'll back off when there's big money on the line, but Catherine, your thoughts. Like you pointed out earlier, this is some complex law and regulations around this stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't speak to what the judge or the, how the judge or the company Kingswood might react to pressure from yeah. members. I think, you know, part of the risk here, and Kingswood has said they won't do this, but, you know, when you have a private investment firm come in and buy out a company that's quite financially vulnerable like NEC is, there's, you know, the fear that they could just, um, you know, sell off the assets for parts. Right. Besides, yeah, yeah, like what we saw with Sears bankruptcy, essentially. So, you know, Kingswood is saying now that they're going to keep those 17 stores open and the vast majority of employees, but... Uh, it's not clear how long they're beholden to those commitments, and um, I don't know if, yeah, what, how they would respond to right. that kind of pressure. Ryan in North Vancouver. Hi, Ryan. Yeah. Hi. Uh, long-time listener, and uh, just like to echo Laura's comments, I agree with her 100%, but I'm curious, if if uh, they sell this off, what happens to all our membership fees? Do we all get our $5 back? <laughs> I wonder. What do not you think, that I Catherine? Care. It's not going to, you know, yeah. change my life or anything. Five, but. five bucks. Yeah, Catherine. What do you think? I don't think members get the five dollars back. Okay. <laughs> uh, I know they, they're responsible for paying their lenders first, and they've got about seventy-five million dollars uh, to cover yeah. before getting to the to the member. I'm not sure the members would be the uh, first in line of the, of the creditors. Daryl yeah. and Cook. Daryl and Coquitlam. Hiya, Daryl. Hi there. Yeah, I've been shopping at Mech since the 80s, and it's really annoying to think that they're going to do this. They, they certainly should pay the money back to the for the the $5 fee with interest if they're going to play a game like this. I'm almost certain they're going to strip the assets. Mm. You know, they're like they do with trucking companies where they come in and they take all the property and then they just use the name and, and just rent the property back. And if the company goes bankrupt, it goes bankrupt. I'm sure that's what's going to happen. And, you know, Mech has been crazy the way they've been spending on the new buildings. Yeah. The way they stop, I mean, it, what used to be a place where you could get good equipment at a good price. And then they got, you know, into this new era where, oh, we can't sell the best product because, it's made by a company that's associated with a company that we don't like. So, I mean, the thing has really gone off the rails, but they should stop this. And if not, they should pay everybody's money back with okay. Okay, with interest. Thanks a lot for the call. That'd be a lot of money. I think there's what, 5 million members of, of the co-op, Catherine? Yeah, almost yeah. 6 million. I think it's 5.7. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like what? 25, 30 million bucks. That'd be a lot of money to pay back. Rick and Richmond, you got to go fast, Rick. The, 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 in any company that's going under, you can do a cash call on the mem- on the on the shareholders. And if if anybody wanted to save it, they sh- there should be a cash call and take it before the judge that they've got a commitment for a hundred dollars a member from ten thousand members, and and uh, you know they could turn it around. But any company like this, Met started going political as as the last caller said. They they. St- they cut their own nose off to spite the face because because uh, the, their suppliers, the, the highest selling products in their store, 
uh, were cancelled. They they took them out of the uh, loop as far as uh, sales go because they wanted to make a statement. And a yeah. retailer can't make statements. They should be retailing. Okay, Rick, thank you very much for the call. We just got a minute left, Catherine. You mentioned it's not a, a, you know officially a done deal yet. When would the deal go through and be finalized? Uh, they have to come to an agreement by November 30th. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, good morning. Uh, Welcome back to the show. Just a quick programming note for you. We're all over that breaking news for you that has just come out in the last couple of hours here. Dr. Bonnie Henry announcing some measures in the face of the overdose, the drug overdose death crisis in British Columbia, announcing some new measures to allow doctors and nurse practitioners to prescribe safe pharmaceutical alternatives to people who take drugs. Lots of coverage coming up on that. The executive director of the Nurses and Nurse Practitioners of BC will join Jill Bennett coming up after your noon news. She'll be on at 12.30. We will also cover that developing story for you later in the show. So make sure that you stick around for that. Let's talk about traffic laws in our province now. And if you've got a traffic ticket, whether it's speeding, parking, distracted driving, have you ever thought, man, I would like to fight that ticket. This is unfair. Tickets going up. You know, Vancouver police the other day announcing that they were uh, and stepping up enforcement of speeding. Some calls to increase the speeding fines in British Columbia, too. So let's talk about this now. If you've got a ticket that you think is unfair, can you beat the rap? My guest is Paul Doroshenko. He is a criminal lawyer specializing in driving law. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Paul. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Paul. Thanks a lot for coming on. You've been doing this for a long time, fighting these tickets in court. What's your success rate? Like if someone comes to you and says, I've got an unfair speeding ticket, parking ticket, distracted driving ticket, I want to fight it. Is, is it possible to fight City Hall in this stuff and win? Oh, for sure. I mean, I've been yeah. doing it for 20 years. When I started practicing, that there was basically no lawyers. I'd never seen a lawyer in traffic court. It's just me and Kevin Filco. I'd run into him every once in a while. Um, for whatever reason, people weren't fighting tickets the way that they were. I think mostly because the consequences have become uh, so significant over the decades. You know, if you get uh, two tickets in a two-year period, if one of them's an excessive speed or a cell phone, you got a good chance you're going to lose your license for a while. Uh, and of course, now we've got driver risk premium and driver point premium. And as of September last year, now your tickets also affect your car insurance. So there's yeah. significant motivation if you think that you were wrongly issued that ticket to dispute it. And we succeed in most of them. It depends on the type of ticket. You know, the the success rate is different in everybody's case because they're really fact based. Um, but speeding, you know, is is not that easy for the police to prove. Uh, in many cases, and you got to remember, they have to prove it in court beyond a reasonable doubt. It's up to them to call that evidence and to prove each and every aspect of it beyond a reasonable doubt. But if they've got you on like a radar gun, don't they've got pretty much got you red-handed? Nope, 
No, uh, I mean radar's got its issues. Laser's got uh, issues too. They both operate under a different uh, a different system. But the police are supposed to follow a bunch of steps before they even take enforcement action. And lots of times they don't have that evidence. They they don't record it properly, or they don't know what they're doing. Uh, you know, when it comes to um, the speed estimation, they're supposed to make a speed estimate before they take enforcement action as well, and it's got to correspond with uh, the reading that they get on their properly operated, properly maintained, properly uh, tested for calibration device. Uh, and if they haven't done all of those steps, they haven't fulfilled the requirements that are necessary in their training. Yeah. And for the use of those devices. So, you know, like years ago, I got all their manuals, right, for all the different devices, and it's made it really, uh, uh, it's opened it up for us what we can attack in, uh, during cross-examination, for example. Okay, what about distracted driving? I mean, the, the, they've really brought the hammer down on distracted driving penalties and infractions, and the laws are very strict. I mean, even if you just touch that cell phone while you're behind the wheel, even if the car is not moving, right, they can they can nail you for that, right? Yeah, I mean, your your cell phone has to be somewhere where it's uh, where it's affixed in your vehicle or in a cup holder, somewhere where you're not touching it and using it. And if you're using right. it, even in its its uh, uh, hands free mode, you can be in violation of the law. But I'll tell what? you, most I, thought, people, I thought that was allowed. You're allowed to go hands free. Depends on what you're doing, right? Uh, if you're looking at the screen, you're not supposed to be looking at the screen. So, okay. uh, and you're supposed to be hands-free mode is supposed to be connected through your car's Bluetooth audio, not, oh. you know, you using the speaker on it. Oh. Um, so the, uh, the, the, you know, there's lots of offenses there, but the vast majority, the vast, vast majority of people are sitting at a set of lights and pick up their yeah. phone to look because they hear it, you know, beep or bing, uh, and they want to see that there's a text message. And that's where the police get them. And there's some oh, officers, yeah. you know, there's some officers in Vancouver who walk up, take a photo of you as you're there with your phone in your hand and it does make it hard yeah. but you've got to remember you also have all of the advantages of having a trial right so they still have to call the evidence well, they still have to be able to describe the date time place uh and everything and and there's lots of times you go and uh, the police for whatever reason uh you know they cannot remember the circumstances or you know their notes they're missing something in their notes that they realize they should have had so do, you, do the cops sometimes not show up in court? I remember one time I got a, t- a ticket and somebody told me, just just plead not guilty because half the time you show up in court and the police officer is not there. Uh, I think there was a statistic at one point that it was about 6% of the time um, no. that they were dismissed for no-show. I will tell you, we had a huge number of them two years ago or three years ago when we had the forest fires oh, yeah. uh, in August. All the officers in the lower mainland were redistributed around the province. Uh, they didn't have time. When uh, we had COVID court in um, in uh, the high school in Kitsilano over the summertime, officers were not enthusiastic about driving from Burnaby over to Kitsilano uh, for one traffic ticket. But, you know, regular traffic court, you go there, all the officers are there. And for the police, you know, self-represented accused who think that they're going to just show up there uh, and the officer's not going to show up, it's that's shooting fish in a barrel for them. Okay. Uh, because it, it's just so easy for them to get convictions in those cases. Speaking of Paul Doroshenko from Acumen Law, what about a um, a parking ticket? I fought a parking ticket last year, and I managed to beat the rap on that. But you know, I was totally in the clear. Like I had bought my parking ticket at the at the meter, and I had got a ticket even though I had I I bought uh, I bought paid for my parking, and I was able to demonstrate that by showing showing them the receipt, and they canceled the ticket. So I mean, that was kind of an an, an easy out for me. But is is it possible to fight a parking ticket? Uh, in other circumstances? Depends on the parking ticket, right? I think yeah. yours was a private lot, and you persuaded them that you had paid, and so they looked at it and agreed, and you know, 
and dropped that one. That was actually a city one, a municipal one, and it was like you know, it was a slam dunk for me because I was able to show them my receipt. And I said, "Look, I got a ticket. I paid for my parking." And they said, "Okay, you're canceled." But you know, some of those some of those private lots are brutal. I mean, you stay over over time there, and they come and just really hammer you with fines. Yeah, I mean the private lots. We've talked about that before. That's a that's a separate nightmare. But when it's like city and you're at a meter, or you're a city and you're beyond two hours or something like that, Yeah. yeah, there's defenses. Uh, but the uh, the way the city uh, deals with it now, you know, it's basically their own tribunal. You have to phone in first, and uh, yeah. I, I got a ticket once. Uh, my car was arguably parked in front of my house, but uh, it was, you know, sharing the the uh, part of the street with the neighboring house, and they gave me a ticket, said my car was parked too long, my truck was parked too long uh, in front of a house, uh, and that, that was impermissible. And I phoned the city, and, you know, basically I was yelled at by somebody at the city, uh, to the point where I thought, you know what, I, I just don't want to get yelled at again. <laughs> Did they know who they were talking to? Oh, who, I don't think they care. I mean, <laughs> just, like I, okay. I, I, I used to defend uh, parking tickets before they they took it into their in-house tribunal. So it used to be okay. a full-on legitimate court you'd go to, and you had right. an independent judge, and you don't have any of those things anymore. All right, welcome back. Fight that traffic ticket with my guest, Paul Doroshenko, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Let's go right to your phone calls. Larry and Burnaby, hi. Hey, how you doing? Good. Go um, ahead. Can you hear me? I got you on speakerphone. Yes, yes, I can hear you. Um, yeah, okay, so here's the situation. I'm sitting at home. I get up. The police pull up, and they say that I was in a car accident. Um, somebody reported me that said that I backed into them while I was parallel parking. I guess one of these fancy little sports cars that sits about a foot off the ground. I drive a big truck. I guess my bumper doesn't line up with his or something. And so I'm backing. I, they said that I was, uh, backing up out of the parallel parking spot and I bumped into their, bumped into the car. And then I, the cop shows up and says, I I left the scene of an accident. Well, how can I leave this, leave the scene of an accident if I didn't know there was one? Okay, did you get a ticket? Yeah, I got a ticket, a really big one, like $365. Okay, Paul, what do you think of that? $368, and he's lucky he got a ticket. You hit another vehicle, a person, or cattle, and it's a criminal offense if you you leave the scene of an accident. This was a circumstance where the police probably could not identify him as a driver, uh, so they showed up and had the intention to give him the ticket, and they probably also thought that you know he, uh, it, you know, it was a mistake uh, yeah. that he left. But they also didn't believe him that uh, he didn't know about it. Uh, but uh, you know that was a ticket I certainly would have defended. I'll tell you, the vast majority of the time when I have clients with tickets for leaving the scene of an accident, it's very tough for the police to successfully prosecute it. In that circumstance, they could have charged him either as the driver or the registered owner. If he had a lawyer, he probably would have been charged as the registered owner. Uh, if he was dealing with the police himself, he might have ended up charged as the so driver. So maybe, maybe the driver he got shows off, up on your record. Maybe he got off easy then. If he, he could have got, got him. well, he may have got off easy, but they probably looked at you know sort of his culpability there and decided we're not going to conduct a criminal investigation and try and get a statement out of him. Uh, okay. If it was a moving violation where he hit another car on the street, yeah. uh, you know, in Vancouver we have a dedicated hit and run squad. Uh, there's usually three officers in there who are detectives investigating these cases because it's a serious thing i mean people leave the sure. scene of an accident they're trying to if they intend to do it right uh they're yeah. trying to avoid uh, uh avoid responsibility many times right Not absolutely always. sally in vancouver hi sally hi how are you good go ahead well i um was taking my mom to uh service canada on uh, kingsway and night 
and um, my mom, you know, is 86 years old, and I had a handicap sticker on my vehicle, and my father had just passed away that week, so that was why I was taking my mom to Service Canada to get all this paperwork done. Yeah. And um, when we came out, it was like, I don't know, five minutes after three, I see my vehicle being towed going oh. down the street. Uh-oh. And we ended up, it was pouring rain that day. My poor mother had her slippers on. Oh. And we had to get a cab. It took us an hour to get a cab. Then to drive down to the towing company to get the vehicle. So I had to pay the towing fee. And meanwhile, I look at the ticket, and the ticket said 305. The wrong time? Five minutes. Oh. Five. So it was the right time or the wrong, it was the wrong time? Yeah. Like it why, was did, why did they tell why did they, was, why did they tell your I'm, car? Because it was past the, at three o'clock, you know, rush hour. Oh, okay. So you're only you're only three minutes over. Is that what yeah. you're saying? Okay, Paul, well, what do you think of that? My ticket said three my ticket said three oh five. Paul, what do you think? It's the nightmare scenario. It's happened to me. Uh, I once came out and I that my car was on the tow truck and I persuaded the uh, tow. I paid the tow truck driver and persuaded him to let it down. Uh, it's happened to me twice over the course of my life. Uh, it's uh, terrible in those circumstances where you're you know you're trying to take care of your uh, of your you know senior loved one. Don't they give you a little gra- grace period? I mean, five minutes late. I mean, no, gee, no, no, no. They're okay. out there. You know, the tow trucks get to make money doing this. The city's out there handing those, those tickets. The uh, uh, I mean, plenty of times I've been driving and I, there's been a vehicle parked there where there, it shouldn't be and you're in the middle of rush hour and it's holding everybody up. Uh, you know, it's the effective uh, use of the roads is to make sure that uh, they're available and clear for that uh, for those periods. The city's okay. made the decision to put it there. Unfortunately, it's legit. Jeremy in Chilliwack. Hi, Jeremy. Hey, quick, uh, two quick scenarios there. So uh, a 19-year-old kid gets an excessive speeding ticket. I think he was doing 130 and a 90 or 130 and a 100. He got a big ticket. He disputes it in court. He's an end driver. He disputes it in court, and the police officer just downgrades it. Just a normal speeding ticket, like not excessive. Okay, is that ICB- common? Is that common, Paul? Would they downgrade the ticket? Uh, you know, it depends on the officer. They'll look at the person's driving record, but often they'll be assessing what else is in court that day. So they might have something else that they feel is more pressing that they need to prosecute. So they can prioritize they are the prosecutor when it comes to time for traffic court. Ash in Burnaby. Hi, Ash. Hi there. How are you? I'm good. Go ahead. Yes, good. So um, I just have a... Uh, my daughter actually parked up in Vancouver in a meter. Yeah. Um, she didn't have any money with her to to, to put into it. It only needed a dollar for one hour, but she didn't have any money, so she texted me and sent me the meter number to pay my payback home. Yeah. I So I had a new card. Um... Uh, so I tried to put the new card into the pay-by-phone so I can pay my daughter's uh, one hour. And um, it, in August, it was, you know, for some reason, it wasn't accepting it. It was on their website that, this, you know, this website is down. It's not accepting the new numbers oh. or whatever. Yeah. So I had to basically, basically, I had to get a friend of mine to pay on my behalf, which was just a dollar. But it took okay. a few minutes to get that thing done. And in the meantime, within five minutes of her parking, she got a ticket. Oh, okay. Paul, Paul, has he got, Paul, has he got a case? No, I mean the moment you park your car, you're supposed to be paying for that parking. Yeah. Uh, if you if it's a delay, then they can ticket you. Uh, okay. You know, I, I, it's I, it feels 
like it's not very fair to treat humans this way, but that's the law is the law. Well, okay. Lisa in Surrey. Hi, Lisa. Hi, good morning. Uh, thank you for for taking my call. Sure. I, I just had a question because my daughter had uh, two tickets, one in White Rock and one in Langley. What happened uh-huh. is uh, the one in White Rock, uh, she was in the staff light, but she was driving my uh, Mustang car. Yeah. And a cop um, behind her said that she was dragging the, the engine. And it's just, they give her a 110 ticket for unnecessary um, noise, apparently. But Un- Unnecessary noise? What, the, the yes. engine was too loud? That's what they what said. Is, but, it, what, is your but, muffler broken or something? No, it, it was actually uh, fairly new, and it's not uh, altered or anything. He, she's even parked. Okay, like weird, Paul. Okay, we just got we got we only got a minute left. So it's, I hate to step on you, but Paul, what do you think? Unnecessary noise. Uh, it is uh, really the police officer's subjective opinion most of the time. I can tell you that the success rate on those tickets when they prosecute them is very low. Kyla Lee, my uh, partner here, who uh, probably goes to traffic court more than anybody in the province, is dying to run a constitutional challenge to it uh, because she yeah. thinks the legislation is too vague. Paul, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure.